0: Hello everyone, my name's Ed Kemp and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast series, a podcast series providing insights to help professional athletes transition to life after sport. In this episode we feature Dr Bridie O'Donnell, an athlete who forfeited a lucrative career as a surgeon to chase her athletic dream. Bridie graduated as valedictorian from the University of Queensland Medical School and was most outstanding intern in Brisbane in 1999 and at the same time during her residency she was a rower and then Ironman triathlete. In 2007, she began road cycling and raced in the Australian national team after winning the national time trial title in 2008. She then raced professionally in Europe and the United States, representing Australia in three world championships. Bridie returned to full-time work in 2013 as a behaviour change physician in Melbourne with a part-time role teaching doctor-patient communication. For three years from 2013, Bridie also raced and managed for Rush Women's Team, a national road series cycling team based in Australia and in 2016 she set a new UCI World Hour record of 46.882 kilometres at the Adelaide Superdome. In November 2017, Bridie was appointed the inaugural head of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation by the Victorian Government, and in May 2018, Bridie published Life and Death, a cycling memoir, about her experiences as a professional cyclist in the international peloton. I started by asking Bridie about page 61 of her book, where she is quoted as saying that coaches are not measured or paid based on the pastoral care and personal development of riders, rather they're there to turn talent into medals. It's about outcomes, not producing better human beings. And off the back of this observation, did she believe elite sport needs to promote more balance in the lives of professional athletes?
1: When I started competing at elite sport and when I was represented um, representing Australia, I came to that from a long history of not being good at sport. And being around coaches or people who were trying to help me improve my performance, but I'd also been extraordinarily lucky to have coaches who cared about me. And when you came to training tired or sad or um, overwhelmed with university work or you'd broken up with your boyfriend, your coach might care about those things as well, if only because they were good, a good person or because they knew that emotional well-being is a huge part of performance. But by the time you get to a point where there's, you know, X number of people trying to get selected for Olympics and there's three spots, then a coach doesn't have the time, the wherewithal, and as I said in my book, they're not actually paid to care about you. They are actually paid to deliver medals and their KPIs depend on it, their job may depend on it, and the funding for that sport may depend on it. We've seen post-Olympics, you know, X number of gold medals goes to cycling, then we get more money. Rowing gets this many gold medals, they got this much. Less medals, less money, which seems the wrong way around because in many ways you could argue if you got less medals, you probably need more help, more support.
0: Sounds pretty logical to me.
1: But as an athlete, you still are, understandably, quite self-absorbed. You care about your well-being. You care about relationships that break up or a sick family member or not being selected. And yet, you're in this very unusual environment where the person who has been helping you improve up to a point where Olympic or World Championship selection has occurred has supported you in your performance. And then as soon as you're not good enough, they don't need you anymore. You're actually disposable to them.
0: And this fascinates me about this whole area is that this disposability of elite performers, as soon as you're off by a couple of seconds or a couple of percent in your performance, you're gone. I mean, having experienced it, I mean, what are your views on it from the point of view of balancing that elite performance and that really hard-edged issue of if you're not good enough, you're not good enough and we're going to spit you out versus having that sort of pastoral care and the ability to put your arms around someone and look after them, not only for the here and now, but for what might happen for the next 10, 50 years of their life.
1: When you're in it, it's brutal and devastating. And to not be selected feels like it's the end of the world. Uh, It is the end of your world right there and then. And to be told you're never going to be selected again as I was is equally devastating. But I also think we need to understand that we can't be hypocrites about elite and high-performing sport. We do pay a lot of money for sport in this country. We invest, government invests a lot, uh, sponsors, external and private enterprise expends an enormous amount of money and parents spend a lot of money. So for every kid that's been selected, there's been parents that have invested tens and thousands of hours and dollars in that child. And so they're happy that that kid got selected and they don't care about his or her teammate that didn't. So the idea, I think, that we can invest emotionally and financially in sport and we can do medal tallies at every Olympics and we can all wake up the morning after Italy beats the Matildas and be devastated and then wake up this morning and think, well, good, we beat Brazil, we also need to acknowledge that we can't have everything. So I feel that is completely unrealistic to assume that a high-performance coach or a um, the head of the AOC, whomever that is, cares about the emotional well-being of their athletes they want them to be well so they perform well but if they're not well it's actually not their job to fix that. I think that's where an athlete um, a naive or immature athlete doesn't get it and I was naive and immature I thought but shouldn't they care about me as much as my performance now with some space and time and also realizing that not getting selected for Olympics wasn't the end of the world it was it was a first world problem it's such a, it's not even a first world problem it's an elite problem to have. And you don't allow yourself time to sit back and go, okay, I didn't get what I wanted. It's dev- I feel devastated. But also, am I alive? Am I healthy? Am I pain-free? Um, have I taken on some enormously challenging enterprise and didn't quite get there? There's And we've heard Roosevelt talk about this. That's where the beauty in the struggle is. It's in the trying. It's in the, the face marred with dirt and sweat and blood or whatever that quote is about being in the arena. And I think that we don't... We don't need to celebrate the trying at the Olympics. We're doing we're celebrating medal tallies. So there is a difference between how we manage disappointment in elite sport and whose responsibility is versus under 11s basketball.
0: And the support point of view is is really, really critical here, because you mentioned obviously coaches are there to coach. So in your experience, when you're going through that elite sporting environment, who did you surround yourself with outside of the coaching staff? to ensure that you could get your head together when you, if you weren't performing well, but also think about the broader picture than just the next race or the next training session because clearly there's plenty of evidence out there that's, that tells us that there are a lot of elite sports people, professionals who have transitioned to life after sport and have really struggled with their identity, really struggled to understand what their next direction is because they've been in this sort of cocoon for so long and so structured that they can't actually get their head up to work out what they actually are going to do with the rest of their lives, which to my mind is a huge concern for Australian
1: sport. So I think there's two really important facets um, um, to address your question. One of them is that as soon as you start talking about um, additional benefits of being an elite athlete, you start looking at inequality and the privileges that come with either being a very high profile or highly paid sport or the privileges of being a male athlete versus being a female one. So if I can give you my example, I was living in a national team house or in a professional um, team house in a foreign country where no one spoke English and where internet was patchy, so your ability to Skype your coach at home or your boyfriend or your parents was really limited and you were in an environment where maybe you were even competing against your own teammates for selection for the next event.
0: And that's come across in your book, that it's, it is absolutely dog-eat-dog when it comes to, you know, they're, whilst they're in this team sort of environment, at the end of the day, they want to beat you.
1: Of course. And and let's um, understand where they're coming from too. When you're in a safe and secure environment and not even being over at the, um, you know, in France with the Matildas team is safe and secure because if your hamstring plays up, you might get replaced and someone else gets your spot. So it's a very rare team where everyone feels like I'm just here for the team. And you have to be getting paid a lot. You have to be getting valued, equally valued and have a coach and a senior staff that say, Edward, we love you. Your contribution is amazing. We can't do without you. You can go to bed at night feeling safe and secure. And from my experience and for a lot of the female athletes I know, you don't have any security. You have no financial security. You have no reassurance that you're going to get selected. You're not getting looked after in any way and you're actually worried about your welfare on a daily basis. So the idea that you should then be magnanimous enough to look after your own teammates – is not really there. There's not that encouragement and you're living in a foreign country. So a lot of um, the autonomy and agency of the athlete is removed. Secondly, the, the difference between men and women and if we can compare a really highly paid sport like say the NBL or the NBA, I apologise, and the difference between what getting a minimum wage or a good salary means for an athlete is that they at least have some agency. They at least might have a person around them, a loved one. They can afford to move cities and take their wife and kids with them. Um, If you're an athlete that's not getting paid and not getting endorsements and in a less visible sport, you don't have any power in these situations. So your support group might be amazingly um, emotionally supportive of you. And they might be sending you messages and, and social media has a revolutionised sport um, and the access that we have to athletes, I think, in a really positive way with some negative downsides. But I think it's made women in less visible sports more visible to their fans and made them connect. And we've heard Darcy Vessio, the AFLW player, say that when she injured her knee, that one of the best things about being injured and doing rehab was, you know, posting some really wonderful videos from the gym and then people saying, you're awesome, we love you. That didn't happen five years ago. There was no Instagram connecting people the same way.
0: And that's interesting because there's also the downside though too, isn't it, of the social media and the trolls and all the, all the reports that have come out of various sports people, men and women, who have suffered as a result of the keyboard warriors. You mentioned something about being overseas, essentially on your own, not great with the language. Can you talk about the resilience that you had to draw on internally to cope with that situation? And also, you must have felt quite vulnerable as an athlete and as an individual, in certain situations while you were sort of in that phase of your life?
1: I don't think I did cope very well. I think I felt very homesick and I felt um, an injustice about the way I was being treated and um, abused and So I can't say that I sort of woke up every morning and thought, well, I'm just going to keep fighting. I know that we're experiencing days and weeks where I thought, this is rubbish. You know, why have I got a team director who knows nothing about exercise physiology and who's not a coach, but is insisting I do the training sessions that he makes me do. And I've got um, plenty of flaws. One of them is, you know, I want to engage with people on a level where I feel like they hear me out and I hear them out. Um, And for a lot of the relationships you have in sport, and particularly with an old Italian man, he doesn't want to hear me out. And I'm
0: assuming so there's a real imbalance there with respect to what he's going to tell you and what he's prepared for you to tell him and to listen to you. Of
1: course. It's a my way or the highway style. Now, the the strategies you have around this um, are, of course, you can just be deceptive and say, yes, yes, Lucio, I'll do that training session and then not do it. But I also don't think that's a sustainable way to be, not only in your life, but also what you're telling that person is, yeah, everything you say is right and other athletes are suffering. And whilst I didn't feel like I had a lot of power, I was still 20 years older than some of my teammates with a medical degree and a degree in exercise physiology and an athlete who'd come from other sports and a real passion for training the right way. So for him to not be just exploiting me, but all of us and for his formula, To be working with about one or two athletes means that a person in power is validated for their choices they're making. It's the eggs on the wall strategy. We've heard swimming coaches talk about this. Brett Sutton, the infamous triathlon coach, Uh, you know, if I get give me a hundred athletes, I'll give you a world champion. And you think, yeah, in in brackets. How many athletes have eating disorders? How many have chronic overtraining and um, you know long-standing injuries? How many pull their, themselves out of the sport? And for me, the personal cost is not worth it. And
0: you've obviously now got perspective because you've been through it, so you can look back and go, "Well, yeah, maybe that wasn't quite as great as I thought it was going to be." But from a perspective of someone who's been through it, do you think it's right that coaches aren't supposed to be looking after the full, you know, the whole person, as we call it? Because if you look at You know, David Parkin's a great example of somebody who, from a very, from a long time ago, when he was coaching in the AFL system, he wanted his players to have balance in their lives, and he wanted his players to be doing other things. You've experienced this. I mean, you're clearly unbelievably successful in all facets of your life. You've, you know, medical degrees, exercise physiology degrees, plus all the professional sports experience. But talk about balance. I mean, do you think balance is important based on your experience around? helping elite performance from a sporting perspective?
1: I think the word balance is unhelpful because it makes us think of scales being even and we think of 50-50. As though there's only two components in this conversation. And secondly, to be exceptional at anything... No, there is no balance. You just have a new baby. You're at home. You're probably at home in your jammies for weeks and weeks and months on end. Any new mum or new parent knows this. There's no balance in becoming a new mum. There's no balance in trying to make partner in a law firm. There's absolutely no balance in studying for your part one surgical exams. And it becomes everything that you're doing. But I was very moved by the SBS Insight episode that showed four extremely successful athletes talk about their transition to life afterwards. And in fact, I was very reassured to see it. It was very hard to hear Lauren Jackson and Libby Trickett talk about those, and Barry Hall, yeah, thank you, and, and Matthew Mitchum, was that those athletes had achieved all of the things I wanted They'd won gold medals, they'd represented their country, they'd been paid millions of dollars and they were unhappy and I would have to say um, maladjusted. So what that did for me was actually make me feel better about my lack of talent. It made me feel better about the fact that I had started my athletic life as a mediocre and an all-rounder. I don't know what it must be like to be Lauren Jackson, to be born to two parents who love a sport, to be given DNA, environment and opportunity To become Australia's best ever female basketballer, I don't know what that must be like. It would be brilliant, corrupting, burdensome, outstanding in all ways. It would would actually
0: it would be brilliant as much as it would be disastrous potentially. Absolutely. But the thing which interests me about your story is the fact that it sounds to me like you didn't grow up thinking that way, from the point of view of, and you weren't put in a box to say, well, you're going to be an unbelievably good cyclist or a rower or a triathlete or an Iron Woman. So there's, there's this issue of expectation, and that's expectation not only from a sporting point of view, but also from a rest-of-life perspective, because, oh, I'm Lauren Jackson, I'm expected to be elite at everything. And clearly, I mean, in the SBS Insights show, it showed that she really, really struggled, especially in the early days of life after sport. So can you talk about expectations? Because you obviously had expectations of yourself when you were studying medicine, and you clearly did very well. Transpose that into a sporting environment where you haven't been the prodigy from a young age. And so as Bridie O'Donnell is growing up, and she's n- she's not going through the various age groups, smashing everybody, and there's an expectation when you get to senior level, you're just going gonna to win a gold medal.
1: Yeah, I think being an underachiever at sport was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I grew up-
0: You are not an underachiever. I said
1: I was one. <laughs> I'm making up for it. <laughs> but I grew up in regional Queensland in um, a sort of strange hippie community, not a community, but just inland of the Sunshine Coast with two brilliant parents who just wanted to have a good life, enjoy themselves and enforce upon my sister and I. The only thing they wanted to enforce upon us, if I can use that word, is that education was the number one priority in our house. My dad is a teacher, was a teacher for 55 years. My mum was a social worker. They both had tertiary education. And my sister and I were just you know, enjoying our life as young kids. And we weren't exceptional in any way. We went to a very small independent school. And when we finally went to a state school in, in final year of primary school, and then on to um, a private school, girls school for high school, I was surrounded by people way better than me, smarter than me, uh, better at me than um, in many other sports. So I was aspirational all the time. And I constantly compared myself to people who are better than me. Now, that wonderful and much um, quoted desiderata about don't compare yourselves to others because you can become vain or bitter. I certainly was more comparing myself to people better and therefore was more bitter. Um, I didn't compare myself to people sitting on the couch or the people who got 57% for maths. I got 98% and thought, how come I didn't win the maths prize? And I don't know where and when that comes from because my parents didn't ever tell me they'd love me more if I won. They didn't ever um, withhold love from me or um, judge me by my performances. I just had an unshakable desire to be exceptional and I can't remember when I haven't felt that way. Now, of course, the downside of that aspiration is that you are frequently disappointed. You're frequently losing and losing, and I put in inverted commas. And through high school, I worked my ass off and got into med school. And in med school, suddenly then you're really, you've gone from being the smartest girl in this school to being surrounded by 200 people who were also the smartest kids in their school. So that's the best benchmarking and a reset happens. And then you think, okay, how much do I care about winning medicine? And I didn't care enough. You know, I had some super smart friends and one of my best friends in med school who we we met on the first day of med school is now a leading cardiothoracic surgeon in Sydney and transplant surgeon. She was the smartest person in our year of 200, gifted, but also she cared enough to devote her energy. And that's when we talk about balance, I think. It's around how much do I care to keep trying on the thing that is either already a strength or I want to make it my strength.
0: The one thing that comes across in all of the stories about athletes that haven't transitioned well is at the end of the day it's up to you. And Ron Barassi, great quote: "If it is to be, it is up to me." And I feel that what you just said about your parents—that education was the first priority—and so you clearly went and did that, and then you went into sport. Whereas a lot of a lot of people do it in the in the reverse order. Can you talk about your experience studying medicine? I've got a sister who's a breast cancer and, and trauma surgeon, so I I get the the understanding of the commitment and i'm assuming the commitment must have been very similar with respect to how much you had to throw yourself in to your studies but at the same time you're you're doing triathlon and you're doing ironman and you're trying to be a rower so can you talk about the time that you've spent studying and then the fact that you actually were doing other stuff as well because to my mind that says that there's a bit of balance there you're not doing you're obviously clearly doing very well at uni but at the same time you've got something else in your lives to your life to probably keep yourself sane.
1: It definitely did keep me sane. And I think also it helped me feel some value outside of med school, because as, a, as I said, it's a very competitive environment, it's 200 people. And it's an un, it was an undergrad degree then, now it's postgrad, it's even more competitive. And I've been a teacher at medical school at Deakin University, and you've got this amazing cohort of students that are all in their early 20s, they've done other degrees, and now they're desperately trying to study just to graduate. Now, we've seen recently in the newspapers some pretty damning reports on medical specialty training. What is it like to try and become a physician? it sounds like
0: never been in it, but it sounds brutal.
1: It is brutal. And where I think where there's greater scrutiny being placed on the industry of medicine more and more, particularly in Australia, we've seen inquiries around sexual harassment in the College of Surgeons a couple of years ago. Um, So there is a hierarchical structure not unlike the military. Which is you have an enormous cohort of people who all have talent, physical talent in the, in the army. Major. But you'd also
0: say that it would have he would be the same as in sport with respect to that. Yeah, it's that a pool. Imbalance. It's yeah. a talent
1: pool, and it becomes a kill or be killed mentality. Um, which is, um, you know, you'd hear people talking like this around how many hours sleep they haven't had and how many shifts they've done and. Even just when you're feeling like maybe, am I tough enough for this? You've got senior doctors saying, in my day, we did 72 hours on call. And I remember, you know, hungover orthopedic surgeons doing procedures while they had a drip in their arm. And you think, well, that's not something we should be celebrating. And I don't want my grandmother having her fractured hip operated on by a hungover doctor with a drip in his arm. So there's sort of, um, this kind of masculinization of how tough can you be? How tough can you be to tough it out? And yet what we're seeing more and more is the medical um, industry is taking its toll on people's mel- well-being, and doctors are finding it hard to say no, to say no to work, to say no to this, the rigorous schedules and we're seeing high rates of suicide in doctors. This isn't a new problem. We see it high rates of suicide in dentists as well, that there's a demand on you and the idea that you're supposed to solve everyone's problems is actually a burden that our healthcare system doesn't support.
0: So how do we how do we change that because the, to my mind and my real passion is the culture of Australian sport and making sure athletes do have something else in their lives to transition to when they finish so so they can lead productive and fulfilled lives for the next 40, 50 years after they finish, which is no different to
1: the cultural issue of what you just described in the the medical field. So how do you change it? I think it started to change with the Essendon doping scandal. I think that that's suddenly when um, the broader community, and we're here in Victoria, so we have a bit of a bias. But that was first when um, a long-held sport that had a way of doing things was suddenly placed under the microscope in this sort of sheep mentality that young male athletes were just being led, if you like, to a room where they were being injected. They'd signed a waiver without really doing a very good job of reading it. And someone in a position of power, James Hurd, who was given basically a, a golden handshake to do anything he wanted, had hired another completely unreputable person, to really fulfil this win-at-all-cost attitude. Now, I know there are Essendon supporters that feel very strongly about their love affair with James Hurd, and then there are others, um, journalists like David Culbert, who was a victim of doping of other athletes when he was a Commonwealth Games uh, long jumper, who feels very strongly in the other direction. But what I do know is for the first time ever in Australia, suddenly we thought, do we want to win at all costs? And what are the costs? We don't even know what these young men were injected with. Fast forward to a few other moments in time where most recently we've seen the Australia's response to the cricket ball tampering scandal was actually quite visceral. Suddenly everyone thought, "Hang on a second, we're not a country of cheats." And how did we get to a point where extremely well-paid, well-supported young men in power, because one could argue the captain of the Australian cricket team has more power than the coach, why did they make these decisions? How desperate were they and what does that say? And then the response by the country, which is, we actually don't want to win at all costs. We don't want to kill or be killed. We want to be good human beings.
0: And I think it's perfectly right. I mean, I'm heavily involved with cricket, so I I understand the, the real anger what happened in Cape Town last year caused, but it also caused, I think to your point, everybody to actually take stock. And so hang on a second. Yeah, we want our cricketers, we want our soccer players, we want our – whatever team's out there, we want them to be good. But before we want them to be good, we want them to be decent and we want them to do the right
1: thing. I just want to like to say, though, that the absolutely glaring – obvious elephant in the room in this conversation is the fact that there are different sets of rules for women and men. That women athletes do not have the same privilege of behaving badly, of being morons, They're not date raping people. They're not sharing videos of non-consensual sexual activities with their friends. Um, They're not being homophobic and racist on social media and then saying, but I still deserve to keep my job. Now, we have very different standards for our female athletes. And if they even just say something mildly stupid, the world is um, very entitled to pile on.
0: So I've got some vested interest in this because I've got three beautiful daughters who are going through this journey now. Talk to me about your views on where women in sport are now with your current role with the Victorian government, you're heavily involved in a champion for women's sport. So talk to me about your view on where we are now and you think about what's happened in in certain sports. I think cricket, you'd argue to say, has led the way with respect to compensating women so they can actually make a living out of the game. You've got AFLW and the participation rates at the grassroots level I'm seeing with my own eyes and my children has just gone through the roof. But talk to me about your perspective and where you think we are versus where you would like us to get to and how long you think
1: that's going to take. So many things have happened in the last 24 months that have really shifted, I think, the public mindset about the value of women in sport. And there's no women's sport. There's just Sport. sport and everyone plays it. And I think that that is a really important piece of language that we need to change um, the idea around the W after a, um, a leak. I get why it's there, but wouldn't it be great if it was just AFL and AFL-M and AFLW, or if there was just the Australian cricket team, Women's World Cup, Australian cricket team, men's. So in the last few years, we've seen an enormous shift. And a, a great example is the Matildas. You know, not many years ago, The players of the Matildas put out a calendar of them all naked to raise money to get them to a World Cup. Now, there's nothing wrong with displaying your naked body when you're in amazing form and you're one of the best footballers in the country. I say go for your life. But the fact that that's your only way of doing it, says that women are still needing to be sexually attractive, desirable, and fulfil our requirements, ours in the general communities, of, of attractiveness to raise money and be worth watching.
0: Could we argue, though, that if you go back 10 or 15 years, they had the male, we, we had the male version in AFL with respect to the blokes doing calendars and, and having and see, a similar sort of thing? See, this is the difference,
1: though, that um, Cameron Ling can still make a mint, and no disrespect to Cameron Ling's face, but he is not Brad Pitt. But um, what we've seen historically is that you have to be good looking, attractive, straight, white, blonde, good teeth, nice sized breasts, good abs. I mean, this is what an Instagram influencer looks like now. This is what a young woman on Instagram, who may or may not even be an athlete, that's what she looks like. And she's our default uh, desirable athlete, woman who's sort of a Fitzpatrick type. And yet, what we know, and when we look at Anna Mears and Liz Cambage and Mon Conti is that there are three elite athletes who all have very different shapes and sizes um, and backgrounds who are the best in the world at what they do. So what I've seen in the last two years, and this office for women in sport and recreation was created in November 2017. In that time, we have seen enormous change, um, you know, that's happened in parallel with the investment that our government is putting into women in sport. You're right. We now have over 1,000 teams of women's footy registered in Victoria, so nearly 30,000 girls and women registered to play footy, which is brilliant. Now it brings with it its own challenges. Who coaches these girls? And Uh, where do they play? Where do they play? And how do I, and this is my job, how do I shift the mindset of a club president who says, my fields or our fields are being impacted by these girls who want to play. And I say, no, no, these girls are members of your club. This isn't. These fields aren't just for your senior men's team. These fields are for everyone who says they're a club member. And
0: I think you make a good point because having lived it and breathed it for five or six years now with my own children, you actually see the benefits of families all going to games of footy together and going to games of cricket and soccer and all the other sports that are out there. And it brings – I mean, I love sport because it brings people together and it connects people from all sorts of different shapes, sizes, backgrounds, creeds, colours, etc., for one specific purpose. And I think that my question really centres around how do we get sport where there's an equal playing field with some of the issues that you've raised? Because at some stage it has to happen, but, I mean – you're in the perfect position to probably give us some perspective on how long that's going to take.
1: Well, if I can give you an example of a sport that's been doing this for a really long time, it's hockey. We've seen our Australian women's hockey team perform brilliantly on a world stage for a very long time. So people's consciousness of women playing hockey and men playing hockey has been equal, and the kookaburras and and the women's team have been performing as best they can at different times. And hockey in, in a state level has been doing really good things around alternating fixtures for a really long time. They've just launched the new NHL here in Australia, the Hockey League, um, and they're paying their players exactly the same amount. So there's sports like that that have been doing the right thing about all of their players for a very long time. There's also um, a sport like basketball, that, which is the WNBL, the WNBL is the oldest women's professional league of any sport in the country, and I think it's a travesty that we're still not seeing WNBL games free to air for everyone who loves basketball in this country.
0: Because there's a 50-50 split between male and female basketballers, as I understand it, from the perspective of the people who play and the people who consume it. Participants, absolutely.
1: And we know that Australians, um, basketball fans, consume a lot of basketball, but guess what? They're all watching the NBA. But does that mean then that if it was on, do you think we'd watch it? See, I think you're thinking at it from the wrong direction. And this is where um, the mainstream media outlets will say, well, um, no one's heard of Jenny Smith. So we're not going to do an article about her. We're going to do our article about Dustin Martin's groin because everyone knows who Dustin Martin is. And we don't care if it's the fifth article this week. People want to consume this content.
0: But it's sort of a chicken and egg though, isn't it? That's because what you- I'm trying
1: to say, that whose responsibility is it? Um, because every four years when we watch Olympics, guess what? Australians love watching competition. If you can think back um, to many, many years ago um, when we had the Sydney Olympics, some of the most watched events were, of course, Cathy Freeman winning the women's 400 metres, the women's water polo team against America. I remember distinctly where I was probably watching the, that game.
0: Probably the highlight of that games for me It was extraordinary.
1: Yes. So what we know is when we have, if we think about sport as a contest, when we have two pretty equally matched teams at a very, very high level who are in the form of their lives, guess what? Australians do not care about their gender and they don't care what the sport is. We watch rhythmic gymnastics and they think, here we go, I'm going for the Chinese girl, because we suddenly over two weeks have heard high level commentary, expert commentary, brought to you in a a really brilliantly, um, you know, fan friendly package. So actually that's what sport ones and last year when the Matildas played two games in New South Wales midweek in Penrith and Newcastle, the stadiums were chock-a-block and the sound of the screaming and the cheers, girls, parents and their kids and boys lining up to get Sam Kerzart autograph. So I believe that it is event managers, uh, race license holders, media managers and the sub editors of the Herald Sun and The Age, that's their responsibility to do that story about Jenny Smith because guess what, then we all know who she is.
0: And I mean I look at the reaction of when the Matildas got beaten the other night, and it was it was actually quite informative in a lot of ways because clearly there's an expectation there, which we got back we spoke about earlier in this conversation, that the Matildas are going to do pretty well. They lose the first game and then it's just it's outrage. Oh, you know, the way that they played and they had the wrong system and I don't really understand the soccer system with respect to how you set up on the ground. But that gave me some hope that there is actually there is care there and we actually do care and we don't care whether it's our male soccer players or our female soccer players we want them to do well but how do we translate that into equality
1: Well, it is being translated. It's being translated in Victoria on a daily basis. We're the only state that has a 50-50 male-female cabinet. Uh, I think there's 48% of um, members of parliament in the Labor Party are women. Uh, They have a safe and strong policy around prevention of violence against women. They're the only jurisdiction in the world to have implemented a Royal Commission into Family Violence. We are the only jurisdiction in the world that has an Office for Women in Sport devoted to looking at participation facilities and leadership for women and girls. So We're very fortunate in Victoria and we're very motivated and engaged in gender equality, in sport, in business. Um, And I think other – and we're seeing this in other countries and jurisdictions and we're giving advice to other jurisdictions about board quotas and how to implement culture change in sport. So it's actually happening and I think what you will probably be witnessing when you are seeing community sport is there are actually great – and willing and motivated volunteers in sport everywhere. I mean sport in Australia runs thanks to the generosity of others without well, other volunteers it wouldn't exist. But what we have seen is historically that one loud voice at the top, the president or um, the chair or the CEO, their views are usually held. And historically, well, and even still, that voice is a man and that man is white and he's over 50. And in fact, we know broadly in business there are more men called Andrew who are CEOs than there are women CEOs. And I know you're smiling, but you're not called Andrew. No,
0: I'm Edward. Although my father's Andrew.
1: <laughs> so, what I'm trying to say is that there are good people everywhere who want diverse. Level playing fields, and you talked about that before. You said sport is this great community leveler, and you can come from anywhere. But what I've experienced in the last eighteen months is it's not. It's deeply political. Um, it's um, held by long-standing, passionate views about why you're wrong and I'm right. Um, and if we think about long-standing rivalries between AFL clubs, NPL clubs, you know, South Melbourne Football Club, and what does that bring, and what are the ethnic backgrounds associated with that? Um, but also the nature and the challenge that we have, particularly around gender is this idea around sport being binary. So if you win, I've got to lose. If you're wrong, I'm right. If you're offside, I'm onside. So we're not very good at a grey area in sport. We like things to be clear cut. And you can, as you say, after the Italy-Australia game in the first round of the World Cup, everyone had very strong views about the VAR and if she was offside or not and was that a lucky goal and we should be right and they shouldn't have sacked him. And So everyone has an opinion and not many people want to be in the middle ground and just say, well, isn't sport great? Because we're not just there to be great, we're there to goddamn win it.
0: I've spoken with women who sit on boards and they have told me that they're happy to be appointed on the basis of their gender, to be part of a quota, if you like, and and I've also spoken with women who have told
1: me they would absolutely only ever be appointed on merit. Um, No woman says she wants to be the token woman, trust me. She thinks she got there on merit. Um, Merit stands for mates elevated regardless of intellect or talent. Merit means I like you, I'm going to hire you because you're going to agree with what I say and the board meeting is going to go smoothly. Merit means um we all went to the same school and we've just got the same sort of attitude, Edward, you know, like we're just approaching the club in the right way. White style, male and pale. Exactly. And we've seen that in cricket, we've seen it in AFL, we've seen it across many sports. Um, whatever the background, we see it in netball. It's pale, female, and stale in some netball organizations. What I'm trying to say is there is no diverse thought there. They're all the same age. You know, so I absolutely support quotas. And in fact, we are now one month away from Victoria being the first jurisdiction in the world to implement a 40% board quota for sporting organisations. They've had a three, all of these sporting organisations have had a three-year lead time. But let me tell you why I support quotas now. When I was young and ambitious and smart and graduating med school, I just thought, well, I'm terrific and I'm going to work my ass off and then people are going to notice that. And I'm going to get the same opportunities as all my male colleagues. And guess what? Didn't happen. It doesn't happen. But why? Why? Because it's called the patriarchy. It's structured a certain way. And trust me, I, mean, I can give you hundreds of examples. I'm going to give you a couple. Um, a couple of years ago, the Australian Defence Force looked at the population of fighter pilots and people in high-risk but high-skill roles in ADF, and they are looking at Air Force. Two percent of fighter pilots were women. And they thought, why is this? You don't need testicles to be a fighter pilot. You sit in a chair and you have to make incredibly difficult decisions in an aircraft, so you have to have incredibly high skill, amazing experience and certain psychological traits. And for 100 years, people who selected fighter pilots thought, well, there has to be a man because only men know how to fly a plane. And they hired a woman who's a wing commander for the Air Force to look at the selection process. And what do you know? The whole thing was geared towards being male. Tell us the captain of the football team so we know what leadership. This was in the job interviews. You know, um, you need to be able to bench press this amount. So if you keep setting a standard that people who are perhaps less physically strong can compete, then, of course, no women will pass. Um, If you keep saying, which boys' school did you go to to get an interview? Well, then no girls have been to any boys' schools or captained any rugby teams because 30 years ago, women didn't play as much rugby. And in the same way as when I was trying to get into the College of Surgeons, they said, we'd probably let you into the College of Orthopaedic Surgeons because you're kind of like us. You can laugh at our jokes. You can enable our poor behaviour. You don't get cranky when we say things that are sexist and racist and homophobic. And I look back now and I think that's because I was trying to fit in. I was trying to fit in with your behaviour. And there are men who do this as well. I don't want to call out racism or sexism or homophobia because then I won't be on the board or I won't be an executive. And what you end up then with is eight men who all think the same. And sometimes there's a woman in the room and she thinks the same too. Look,
0: I don't disagree with you because I must admit I've had a couple of pretty animated conversations over the course of the last three months off the back of the Royal Commission into Banking and Finance. The one thing that the Commission, in my view, didn't address was the appointment of boards, which is exactly the- Well,
1: that's because they use the AMP example as their shining light, which was, huh, they had a woman chair and look at them, they're a bunch of fraudsters. And you think, well, that wasn't just her. That's two decades of behavior that hasn't been unchecked.
0: Now, so I think look, we could talk about this for hours. We but could. We don't have an hour. Tell stuff. me about mentors. Tell me about some of the people in your life who have helped shape who you are and have helped you on your journey in medicine, in elite sport, and now- what you're doing with women in sport and how important have they been?
1: They've been immensely important and instrumental to success, I think, the people who are around us. Um, when we're, I think when we're young, we don't realise, but our parents are our first mentors. They're um, reprimanding us, they're setting boundaries, they're asking things of us to contribute. You know, you want to unstack the dishwasher, I'll give you pocket money. I mean, this is a, these are teachable moments.
0: So you've been in my house lately. <laughs>
1: um, apparently no one gives pocket money for tasks anymore. You just give them the money anyway. It's oh, tough being a parent. No, I no
0: it's very tough. <laughs> but we love it.
1: Uh, on the record, he says. Um, so being surrounded by, my dad was a teacher, as I said, and my mum was a real trailblazer. I thought it was just normal that you had a mum who was working and a dad who was staying home building our house. He's an incredibly talented polymath, my dad, but our mum was a primary breadwinner for a couple of years, and then both of them had really interesting careers that didn't necessarily go in a linear way up. They might have gone sideways to new and interesting experiences. And my mum worked at the Human Rights Commission, she came to Victoria and was a legal ombudsman of Victoria. And what I think she particularly demonstrated to me was the idea of career change and risk. I think we have a risk aversion culture in Australia. I think we're very good at saying to someone when they tell us they're going to try something, oh, that won't work. And it's interesting you say that
0: because sometimes when I travel on public transport, I feel that some of my fellow passengers aren't happy about what they're doing in life and that they're potentially just going through the motions. Um, and this risk aversion potentially can lead to them not actually chasing all their passions or having a – having a look at something else, an alternative to what they're currently doing. Um, and that is a quite an interesting observation. And I'm sure plenty of people that I know over the course of time have had those very similar feelings.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think that um, actually what might have happened is that they did try. They tried in the past and their failure, in inverted commas, was not received well. So then they thought they learned from that and they now they stay safe. Look,
0: I think that's a cultural thing in Australia because if you go to, especially to the US and Israel, if you fail as an entrepreneur, you, you're almost celebrated. And the next time that you present an idea to a potential investor or someone who might back you, they say, well, their mentality is, well, you, you've got to be better the second time around because of all the stuff that you've learned. Whereas here, it's a little bit different. Oh, well, you know, if Kempy's failed, well, you know, we'll sort of put him away. And I look at the coaching analogy. It's very rare that an AFL coach that gets sacked gets
1: another job as a senior AFL coach, even though they- Unless they make malthouse. I can name a few more if you want me to. But I, think, you know, what I'm saying no, no, no I do. But I also think where we where we need to address that, and we can do that as adults, and we can do it with our kids, is, um, and this is what cycling taught me: is to stop focusing so much on the result and focus on your performance. So when you're a domestique, my job is to help someone else win something she's going to win it in a sprint, she's going to win it in a breakaway, or she's going to win it at the top of a climb.
0: But how does that make you feel as an athlete? Or you just know you your role, feel- know your role, play your role?
1: Totally. I mean, I can't win at the top of the Stelvio, but if I can get to the bottom of the Stelvio at the front of the bunch and have Tatiana in the safest position who's expended the least amount of energy, I mean, that's what those eight men did to help Cadell Evans win the Tour de France. And for many cycling fans, they know who he is, but they wouldn't be able to name those other eight guys. And those men make a living doing that. Now, women don't always make a living being a dominant. But things are changing. But what it does teach you is that I don't need to be on the podium to know my worth. You know, we talk about self-esteem and um, sense of self and what are my values and what do I care about? And I know I'm a worker. I want validation for my work. I want you to see me riding on the front of the peloton as we come into the bunch sprint. And then when I peel off and I'm at the back there with my arms raised and our sprinter has won, you as the team director or the fans go, shit, without her, We couldn't have done it. And Renshaw is a great example. Mark Renshaw is one of the greatest domestiques of of our time. And his job was to help Mark Cavendish look good hundreds of times, millions. Greg Henderson from New Zealand did the same for his teammate Andre Greipel. So cycling teaches us that I will be making a contribution and it may not be visible, um, it may not be awarded, it may not be recognised, but we all split the prize money. And the metaphor that you take then to this world of business or public service is the role I play may not be as visible as the CEO or the minister or the chair, but they can't do it without me. And this
0: is I think this is the whole point when it comes to why we put on the earth, get the most satisfaction out of helping people. And so You broke the world one-hour record in 2016, if my memory serves me correct. Now, that's a really individual achievement. I'm no doubt with a a group of people around you helping you. Tell me about how you feel about achieving something like that versus you walking down the street and seeing one of the teammates that you helped get to the podium in cycling overseas, and they put their arms around you and they give you a hug and they say, it's so great to see you, because they know what you've done for them versus what I call an individual achievement where-
1: You don't know many elite athletes. They don't behave like that. Trust me. Elite athletes are pretty self-absorbed. So um, absolutely, breaking the world hour record was the greatest sporting achievement of my life because of the context- because of the work required to get there, Uh, because I had no skill in that area and I set myself an an incredibly audacious goal and then I gathered an amazing team of people to support me through it, which was equipment and aerodynamics and testing and financial support to pay for my anti-doping protocol that men don't have to pay for. So what I mean is that context is everything, and I know Anna Mears has spoken about the number of times she's won world records, and she says that, you know, her bronze medal at Rio was the best thing that she's ever done because she never thought she'd be able to because her coaching had changed. She'd been injured in Beijing. London was such a a high for her. You know, so for so many athletes, it's the story behind the result that that gives them their sense of satisfaction. And And this is what,
0: I mean, I mentioned to you earlier that, I met Liz, Lydia Lucilla last night and her story is incredible. I mean, and you, you made the point before, you know, losing, I, I won't use the word losing, but we, we don't perform as well as we'd like to, as often as we'd like to. Like, in, you know, Lee Matthews makes the comment that you lose more than you win. You know, you you even if you're in a good side, if you play a lot of, a lot of games of AFL football, you, probably, you might come out 50-50.
1: Well, what a luxury for Lee and all his mates who play footy. and in, in, I remember when George Hincapie won a stage of the Tour de France when Lance Armstrong finally allowed some of his teammates to perform well. They said something like, um, actually a better example is Matt Heyman when he won Paris-Roubaix. He had not won a bike race in 11 years. And the guy races 250 times a year or 200 times a year. So every day he's going into his job. It's a job for him. And that's the readjustment of expectation, too, that we need for people in the workforce to think is, I was the smartest kid at school, or I was the best coder, and now I'm working in an organization where maybe I'm the ninth best coder here. And so I've got to work out what value do I bring? And maybe it's my personality, maybe it's my morale and the support I provide for my co workers, as you said, helping others, or maybe it's actually being a people manager and listening to what their issues are and galvanizing everyone to unite them in a new direction. We hear this with CEOs. Some CEOs are startup CEOs others are maintained CEOs, some people are fixer CEOs, um, and others are growth CEOs. And I think that people don't do enough self-reflection to think, what am I actually really good at? What makes me feel great? That whole adage of, you know, find what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I don't always agree with that, but life is a lot easier in a difficult job if you actually care about what you're doing.
0: So we circle right back to, to the focus of this conversation, which is about helping athletes transition to life after sport. So in your experience, What are the things that you would advise athletes as they're going on their journey in sport but then at the same time realising that they're probably going to have 40 to 50 years on the earth when they finish? And athletes are great at setting goals from the perspective of their performance and I want to be a gold medalist or a world champion and you set yourself the task and then you put a process in place and hopefully you achieve that. But you've got to take that off the field as well and set yourself a goal to work out, well, what am I going to do next? And my view has always been it's a lot easier to, to transition out or to something else if you've spent a bit of time thinking about it before you finish, not getting to that moment where you've finished and you don't know what you're going to do. So what are your thoughts on that? And what are, the, what are the parallels that we can take away from sport around goal setting and focus that you could advise athletes that are listening to this about what they could be doing to ensure that they got themselves organised early for when they do finish?
1: I think athletes could ask themselves, um, what do they want? Why are they doing what they're doing? And from my perspective, a lot of athletes are doing what they're doing because they were really good at it when they were young and they continue to seek and receive validation for it. And so sometimes a large proportion of elite athletes are doing so mindlessly they keep showing up to training. They keep getting paid. They keep winning 50% of the time and they're not actually saying, am I happy? Do I enjoy expressing myself with my body? Do I enjoy going to the training sessions and trying to get stronger? Do I enjoy being tested? So find out what it actually is about what you're doing. And maybe you're not enjoying it, but you're doing it anyway because you're good at it and you feel like there is no plan B. So starting from youth, I think it's that idea of like, what am I going to do when I retire? Always have that question in your mind. You might retire at 18 if you're a gymnast or a swimmer, and you might retire at 45 when you're a bike rider, and everyone else will be someone in between, but you will retire. So I think that actually, in the same way that when you're in high school and people are saying, what are you going to do at uni? I think it's like saying, so what are you going to do when you're not doing this anymore? And, and the first time or the first 20 times someone people ask you that, you'll be annoyed you'll be offended and you'll think, what are you trying to say? And people said this to me, at least you've got something to fall back on being a doctor. And I said, I don't want to fall back on anything. I want to be an Olympic gold medalist.
0: And this is the point because we
1: mentioned this at the start about balance. You can't be balanced if you want to be absolutely elite. at Yeah, but you can still think about it for five minutes a day and think, if I wasn't being, if I wasn't in the Australian women's football team or if I wasn't a professional something, what would I be doing? What is my dream job and what do I fantasise about and why? Because the whole idea, I think, for a lot of athletes is that some of them actually, and I'm not naming anyone, but I think sometimes injury comes as a blessing.
0: Lydia was a classic example that took a year out, started an amazing business, Body Ice, I think it's called, and it gave a perspective.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think also that idea of actually asking yourself – um, about your intimate relationships. If you've got a partner or your parents or your kids or the people that you're probably fitting in around your athletic career, ask yourself, what are you giving to them? We, we know that generosity is one of the best ways to feel good about ourselves. So are you being mindful and present in your relationships with your parents, with your partner, with your, your best friends? Or are you just saying, I just got to be here for one more hour and I'm not drinking anything and I'm not eating much because I'm trying to get to weight and I hate parties? ask yourself, well, what maybe I need to give of my energy and my friendship to others just for one more hour, because it's not all about me. And I think that um, when you're a superstar at something, you can be forgiven for thinking it is all about you. And if you're, again, a very high profile male tennis player, you've probably got 20 people in your life telling you it is all about you. I think you need less yes people in your lives. I think we need to all be challenged. And I mean, going back to our conversation around board diversity, what we really want to succeed is people who say, Why'd do you do it that way? You keep getting knee injuries. Should we be doing something different? Should you be seeing a different physio? Do you think you need to put on a bit more muscle? You know, are, having people challenge you about the way you do things is so important as an athlete. And I
0: think, and we're going to wrap up shortly, but this whole issue of mentors I think is really important because you want to find, in my experience, and I'm mentoring a couple of athletes at the moment, that we don't have a sort of a relationship other than the mentoring relationship. And so, we can have really honest conversations with no bias with respect to what's happened before or relationships that might have occurred prior to actually check the thinking and to try to get to an understanding of, well, why do you want to choose that? Why are you doing that? And I look at things like uh, some of the questions that athletes might ask themselves as they're going through their journey. What am I passionate about? As a young woman or a young man, what did I love to do? What it really excites me? They are the types of things that you can spend five, ten minutes a day, as you said, thinking about... And that might actually start leading them down a particular path where they can transition to, as I call it, as opposed to transition from. I know it's a play on words, but I think it's an important play. Last question. What would you tell your 20-year-old self about all the things that you've learned through your journey as an incredibly talented doctor, an unbelievably credentialed athlete, and now what you're doing in women and sport? What are the things that you'd tell your 20-year-old self that you'd, if you could go back in time?
1: Um, that these things are happening for a reason to shape you. That all the hard stuff, the things that you mean you don't get what you want, the pain, um, the loss, the rejection, that these things actually shape you and feels like they're bullshit at the time. I shouldn't, I don't deserve this. As though your path should be easy. Why? So I think that understanding- the, the
0: the beauty of the struggle.
1: Yeah, and it shapes you. And here I am now, old and washed up at 45, <laughs> and I feel so relaxed about myself. I feel good about myself. I like my body now, even though it's nowhere near the body it was when I was 25. It doesn't do the things that I would want it to do. But I respect it. I like that I'm I'm the the personality type that I am. It's not for everyone, but it works for me and it's helping me. And I listen better to other people than I used to. So we have gained all of this knowledge, but you have to gain it with reflection. You have to be critical of yourself in a kind way and say, am I doing my best? Am I really being kind to others? Am I helping others? And when we're 20, we're self-absorbed and we're just thinking about ourselves. And that's okay. Okay. But if things are going to change. You're not going to be the star of the show forever. So start thinking about how I'm in, in absorbing these struggles and these challenges to become whole.
0: Brian right, O'Donnell. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'd love to know what you think. So please email me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.